You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. There are stigmas surrounding all sexually transmitted infections, and there might be another stigma surrounding syphilis. For one, it sounds old. It sounds like a disease from the 1890s, before we knew more about hygiene and public health and infection transmission and before we had penicillin. It sounds like a disease of the past, and part of that is because it almost was. By the end of the past century, in the early 2000s, levels of syphilis were at an all-time low in this country. It was pretty rare. For most people, it was just about gone. Not so much anymore. Canada's top doctor is warning people about the sharp increase in syphilis cases across the country. The main message is for people to test and take measures to prevent serious symptoms. What happened? How do you go from a well-known, very treatable disease being nearly non-existent to a 15-fold increase over just a few years? Do we all need a remedial sex ed course? Or something else going on here? I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Dr. Vanessa Allen is a medical microbiologist and an infectious disease physician at Sinai Health, as well as an associate professor at the University of Toronto. Hello, Vanessa. Good afternoon. Why don't we start with uh, the basics, since it appears uh, we all need to learn this again. What is syphilis? What are its symptoms? What do we do with it? So syphilis is caused by a bacteria called Treponema pallidum. Um, It's a very long and thin organism that's curled around and is in the same general class as some other organisms like those that cause Lyme disease. It's been around for a very long time. There's many theories, but it's existed in its current form at least for 500 years. Uh, We stage it in what we call primary, secondary, and tertiary. And what that means is that early on after infection, if a person develops any symptoms, it's called primary. And it's usually what we call a a chancre or a skin finding, usually not painful, but where the skin is raised and it, it looks like a sore, essentially. And it's usually in the site of exposure, usually in the genital area. That will usually go away on its own, uh, even without treatment. And then people who have syphilis can develop what's called secondary disease. And what, what happens then is the bacteria that initially infected the skin then can go into the body and cause bacteremia, or the, the, the bacteria is basically circulating through the blood. And so associated with that, one can develop a rash all over the body. And and it also causes a a rash on the palms and soles, which is a very unusual finding for most most illnesses. Other symptoms, so some people get really bad headaches. They can have some hearing difficulty. They can have visual changes. And again, usually that goes away on its own, but it resolves much more quickly if one has treatment. And then the last stage is really called tertiary disease. And that usually happens 10 to 40 years later if an individual who had syphilis never received treatment. And that can affect the heart or the brain. And in fact, prior to the advent of antibiotics, it used to be one, a, a very important cause of heart disease. 
And how is it treated? How difficult is treatment once it's identified? It's 100% sensitive to penicillin. So if we can identify that a person has syphilis, it can be treated very, very effectively. And that's really since the advent of penicillin in 1940. Prior to that, they used to give all sorts of different cocktails, including arsenic and bismuth. Huh. But really, it was the grand success story, the fir- one of the first success stories of the advent of penicillin. Okay, so we're having this conversation um, in February of 2024. As we're speaking, if you listen to this podcast, you may also hear uh, like public service announcements uh, for syphilis that uh, have been purchased as ads. has nothing to do with the interview we're having today. But if I had told you we would be having a conversation about syphilis and a public awareness campaign around it in this year, like... It feels very strange to me. I kind of felt like this is a relic of our pre-sex ed STI prevention past. Yeah, no, it's a great point. And I think there have been incredible efforts to reduce the burden of syphilis. Um, And in the 1990s, there was a hope that we would eradicate it in North America and in Europe. But like many diseases, the worldwide burden is extremely high. Hmm. And so in fact... It's estimated that over 40 million cases were identified in 2019 worldwide. And often, like many infectious diseases, it affects settings where there's not strong systems of healthcare or access to testing and antibiotics. And so if you think about it in the global context, as we've unfortunately learned so well with COVID, the hope for eradication really requires a worldwide response. Can we quantify um, its levels in Canada and any kind of resurgence that we've seen? Like, why are we having this conversation here uh, in Canada right now? That's a wonderful question. There's two main ways that we're measuring it. The first way in Canada is just the overall rate. And the rate has essentially uh, increased fourfold. So it was 10 per 100,000 people in 2013, for example, and 40 per 100,000 in 2022 in Ontario. And the same increase has been seen across Canada, in the U.S. and in Europe, unfortunately. So that's been a huge alarm to us in the healthcare field about that dramatic increase that really was not largely affected by the pandemic, unlike some of the other, other infections. The other part of it that's been quite concerning for us is while there is has been an increase in syphilis, historically over the last 25 to 30 years, there's been incredible efforts to reduce the rate of congenital syphilis or syphilis in newborn babies. And really at most, there would be one or two cases in Ontario a year or seven cases nationally. That has dramatically increased over the last several years. And so in Canada, there were seven cases of congenital syphilis in 2017, with 96 cases in 2021. So, you know, tenfold increase in the rate of congenital syphilis. In Ontario, basically, there's been more than a doubling from 2021 to 22. So the trend is continuing. And that's, I think, one of the major reasons why there's been major public health efforts to let people know about this illness, what they can do to prevent it, uh, how to do early detection, and with the goal of really eliminating any new cases of infection in babies. 
Do we have any idea what's responsible for this incredible resurgence? Like, has anything changed about the disease or have we changed our behavior or what? I don't think we have a single answer. Hmm. Going back to first principles, how is it transmitted? So sexual activity is the primary driver of infections in North America and Europe and worldwide for that matter. And condoms are effective at preventing it, but it's also transmissible by oral sex, by vaginal sex, anal rectal sex. And so essentially, if any of those activities occur without protection, there's a risk of increase. Hmm. It's still, you know, not that this is excusable. It's We don't have the same rates of syphilis as we do as some of the other sexually transmitted infections, but all of them are going up, suggesting that there is more sexual activity without the use of condoms. And this is supported by evidence of increase in other sexually transmitted infections, particularly gonorrhea. If we're regressing in terms of all uh, sexually transmitted infections, what's happened here? Like when I was in high school was probably the peak of like STI awareness and condom use and everything. Has that behavior regressed or, or what's going on? A very, very important question. So I think there's really a couple of components to it. One was there was huge investments in public health infrastructure and access to screening and many of the clinics enabling people to be tested more often, getting access to treatment were set up at that time. With the healthcare system being so stressed, some of those services are less available or not available at the same time. And then concurrently, I think we know that People do have sex and they're trying to figure out ways to do it in safer and safer ways. And so it's really offering them those resources. So some of them are these clinics and there's some new models of clinics where people can actually get screened without seeing a clinician, for example. And those have been very, very successful. There's also been the rollout of something called post-exposure prophylaxis. So individuals after a sexual encounter can actually take a pill to reduce the risk of getting syphilis and other other infections. But it doesn't eliminate it. And I, I don't think that the aspiration to elimination is really realistic at this point. It's really making sure that options are available to people to first know about the disease, prevent it, get early diagnosis and treatment, and then and then hopefully advance some of the field going forward with some of the newer innovations. I mean, if this is kind of a disease, you know, as you told us, it generally uh, presents pretty obviously and is treated with a very common uh, penicillin. Why are the rates so high? Why aren't people just catching it, knocking it out and, and moving on? So between those stages that I described, the primary, the secondary, and the tertiary, there's another form of syphilis, which is called latent syphilis. And what that really means is that people don't have symptoms. So we don't know exactly what number of people have latent syphilis, but a lot of people could have syphilis and not in fact know. So part of the prevention pathway is really one, to use condoms when you can or reduce multiple partners where possible or high-risk exposures, but if not, to have regular screening. And so it's a simple blood test that's performed to be able to detect syphilis, even in the absence of symptoms. But one has to be able to have access to a clinical setting where that blood test can be performed and then the results can be. And that's one of the biggest problems internationally is that 
you, you know, a lot of people in uh, lower income settings don't necessarily have access to this testing, particularly during pregnancy. And, and that's been a huge mobilization effort from the WHO and other, other large international organizations. What's the danger uh, when a mother passes this on uh, to the newborn? What can happen to the baby? So it depends when the mother is infected, whether it's early on or later on in the pregnancy. But if it's before the pregnancy or early on in the pregnancy, the biggest risks are that it predisposes the pregnancy to uh, either a stillbirth, neonatal death, or premature birth. And, And if it's a highly active infection at the time of pregnancy, the risks of those occurring become quite high and obviously is very devastating. If the baby is born with syphilis, the impact of that are also very, very dramatic. And so there can be changes in vision or impairments in vision, impairments in hearing, neurological impacts. There can be bone changes and multiple other changes. Not all babies born with syphilis have these symptoms, but if they do have them, the impact on their growth and development is um, unacceptable. How do we test for it in mothers? And uh, if we do, uh, and we can, you know, screen pretty routinely, how how is it slipping through to see these increases that you're discussing? So there's very robust programs in Canada for prenatal screening. So anyone, any pregnant woman in their first trimester or second trimester who goes for prenatal health care is screened for a syphilis test as per routine. The results take anywhere between two days to a week to come back, and the treatment is very widely available. The concern is that not everyone right now is necessarily getting access to that prenatal care because of the stresses on the healthcare system in Canada. Hmm. And there are some individuals who get infected later on in pregnancy. So those are the two biggest gaps in being able to detect it early. And that's in the wealthier context of North America. Uh, That prenatal testing, as I mentioned before, doesn't exist in many other international settings. If it's access to care uh, that is a barrier here, which I mean, it it seems to be, first of all, with everything in healthcare right now, um, but also, you know, repeatedly, as you've said, at the, you know, initial testing stage, at the treatment stage, et cetera. uh, What can we do in this case uh, with this STI and the rising rates of other ones in particular to get around that? So there are a lot of models being proposed and explored for how to deal with syphilis and isolation. And I think that those are really important. So some of them include outreach programs to get this testing or prenatal care to working pregnant people earlier in their pregnancy, as an example, or settings where there's not ready access. There's been some exploration of the use of point of care testing. Um, again, so that it's more mobile, analogous to what we saw with some of the COVID point of care testing. The challenge is you still need the access to healthcare, so you still need to be able to follow up. But there is also incredible efforts on the public health side um, in Ontario and throughout Canada to really make sure that any results that come in are followed up on. There's also been some exploration about more frequent serological testing. 
and whether that would work. I think the challenges that would address individuals who get infected with syphilis later on in pregnancy, but it does not address the primary gap in the initial access to health care that appears to be occurring in multiple jurisdictions. What can we do about uh, the stigma around, uh, you know, going in, being upfront and getting treatment for this? I know syphilis is an STI. STIs themselves, I'm sure, can feel shameful uh, for many people. But this one is also like, I'm not trying to be crass here, but it's kind of like a funny old timey STI that people might joke about, which maybe makes this worse. Yeah, I think we really have to destigmatize STIs. I think it doesn't do individuals a service. It doesn't do our society a service, but this is not new. Um, I was reading some articles about the history of syphilis and it's been stigmatized since the 1500s. So uh, the English used to call it the French disease, you know, huh. like this is has been a longstanding stigmatized illness. And it's very concerning because I think if that's a barrier to people getting testing in the first place or being able to get the proper care, particularly in the context of screening for congenital syphilis, one needs to be able to assure that all of the appropriate tests um, are implemented, particularly because it's 100% treatable. Mm -hmm. So I think part of the approach to, to STIs more generally, a lot of it spearheaded by some of the incredible efforts around HIV prevention have been about destigmatization and offering different ways to prevent, mitigate, understand more. But clearly we have a lot more work to do in that arena. The last thing I want to ask is in the context of your work, you know, as an infectious diseases specialist more broadly, when you look at what's happening right here with this specific disease, and then you consider you know, the big picture of healthcare in this country and globally, what keeps you up at night? What's really relevant here that people should understand? I think there's two main parts that are critical for me. One is that the impact of this is not just at an individual level, but it's on these newborns, for example. And so really using this crisis really of a spike in congenital syphilis as a flag that further system building needs to occur to be able to focus on prevention. I was always taught that congenital syphilis is a failure of the system. Any A single case is a failure of the system. And so with this increase in congenital syphilis, it really is a call to action about how we can better use the talents of our system and the, and the wealth, really, to figure out better ways to address this. So that's the first, first main and most important lesson. The second one, and this is a, a lesson that was so well exemplified during COVID, is that access to health care needs to be a priority, both locally and internationally, if we're going to have control of infectious diseases. And so the idea of dealing with it in the richer parts of a province or the richer parts of the world is unethical and also doesn't help disease control. Vanessa, Dr. Allen, thank you so much for this. Uh, it's an important topic. I'm glad we could have you on to discuss it. Thank you. 
Dr. Vanessa Allen of Sinai Health and the University of Toronto. That was The Big Story. For more from us, you can head to thebigstorypodcast.ca. You can always get in touch with us. The way to do so is via email, hello at thebigstorypodcast.ca. And of course, by calling us up, leaving us a voicemail. We listen to all of them. I do, personally, to each and every one. The phone number is 416-935-5935. If you're a fan of this show, or I guess if you're not a fan of this show, but if you're not, you've probably stopped listening. If you're a fan of this show, you can leave us a review or a rating in any podcast player that lets you do it. And as always, the best thing to do, if you are a fan of this podcast or any podcast, is to recommend it to a friend. That's how we really find new listeners. Thanks for listening and maybe recommending us to a friend. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow.